And Lord Father, we thank you for bringing us here this Sunday morning. And Lord Father, we thank you for our Pentecost season. And Lord Father, as we transition to ordinary time, continue on to help us to see your graciousness and to see the love that you have poured out throughout this uh, the Holy Week and Pentecost. And Lord Father, it's such a, a wonderful time to be, oh Lord. And Lord Father, it's such a wonderful experience to have and such a wonderful to experience the love that you have for us and throughout this, all of this event, oh Lord. And Lord Father, as we continue on to learn more about you, that we, we pray that, Lord Father, you continue to change our hearts, that we renew our minds and help us to understand, help us to draw close to you and help us to love you. And we pray all this in your name. We say, Amen. 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 So today I'm going to talk about loving God. And so I think it's a pretty interesting topic because for this topic, it's a, I would say it's like a something that's very foundational for our relationship with God. And because this, this I think, was so foundational that it's like a, if this foundation actually shakes, like a, you kind of risk like a losing, falling out of grace of God. So that's why I kind of, I kind of want to touch a little bit on this. So uh, I know the last few times I did the worship series, the first one and the second one, and maybe today you might think I'm doing the third one, but I decided to do a mini short series on this one, just a one, one-off, because I think it's important. I think this is also something that's in, in my heart recently, too. So I would say like a loving God is also the basis for Christian living, but this truth is also evident for everyone. And if we turn to Romans 1, verse 19 to 20... And it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So in this verse, we see that through creation, through nature itself, we can see the work of God. And nobody has excuse for not knowing God. But I think it's also interesting because when we turn into uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, it says here, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And I think it's kind of interesting. I think sometimes this is the grace of God that He put eternity into our hearts so that we start seeking for Him, so that we start wondering, oh, there's something more out there. There's something that's beyond all this life that I'm living. There's something greater outside. I think uh, Solomon described it very interestingly, like the things like, uh, of the world, that he called it vanities of vanities. Like when it comes to money, when it comes to power, he called all of these vanities. But in the end, he said, fear God. And to know God is the most important thing. And this is like a, what the Bible called the wisest man. So I think he has something to say. <laughs> and so if we take a look at 1 John 4, verse 18 through 19, it says here in verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears have not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. I think it's interesting because when we take a look at this word perfect here, the Greek is uh, teleos, something like this. Forgive me for my pronunciation. <laughs> but like, uh, if you look at it, it's, it means like a perfect, complete, and it means finished. And it's a perfected form. There's nothing more to add to it than nothing that can be removed from it. And when we look at this word, the root of it is uh, from telos. And this might be some familiar to some people here because this word is also... The word that's used in Bible when it says end, it's the final of the final. There's nothing more to be there. It's the eternal end. And so I think when we talk about love, it's kind of interesting. When we talk about perfect love, especially, because I feel like uh, for us in, to love God, we have to first be loved. Like you have to understand what love is. Somebody has to show it to you first before you can actually love other people. And let's do a small little uh, mental example here, I guess. I know it's uh, some examples are always not perfect, but 
If I can bring across a certain point, it's good enough. So let us imagine a child with a bad grade on the test. I got many of us that's gone through that. I've gone through it many times, unfortunately. <laughs> so the, the question here is, like, uh, do these bad grades uh, make the child any lesser of a child to the parent? I think it's pretty obvious. It's no. But when you look at the perspective of the child, it's kind of interesting sometimes because when I was a child, I don't know about you, maybe you might be more perfect child than I was, but when I was a child, I know like I, I remember taking tests, and when those results came, at, came back pretty bad, it happens quite a lot of time to me too. Uh, like sometimes like what I might begin to think is, oh, maybe like my parents will love me less. Or maybe I think, oh, I failed. And sometimes if it happens too many times, it even comes to a point where you say, like, oh, like, uh, this is just me. I'm, I'm just a continual failure. But when we take a look at all these statements that this uh, child think about, you can start to see like this is a fear of a loss in their identity to the parent. And it's a loss of identity, and it's a form of punishment, as the verse said just now in First John. It say like a fear has to do with punishment. But it's interesting because uh, as a child, like uh, when you fear this loss of identity, like obviously the need is to replenish it with assurance of identity, isn't it? But like, uh, you see, like, uh, it's interesting because when the child starts like, uh, going through this, like, uh, they, they kind of try harder the next time. But when trying harder, it does not provide any identity to you. Or even worse, it might be a false identity sometimes. And that, that's even more hurting because like, uh, when you kind of go through this, you thought, oh, maybe like, uh, if I get the better grade next time, if I do better next time, I might get, my, my parents might love me a bit more. And, and, and all at this point, most of us, we know it's, this is false. And so let's take a look at our... Okay. And let's take a look at the parents' perspective here now. So like, uh, this is usually what the parents will say a lot of times. What doesn't kill you make you stronger. Because sometimes it's interesting, like, uh, when the child fails their test, like, uh, you're like, uh, it's, it's not a big deal. Like, it doesn't make you any lesser, but in the child's view, it's like a devastating, it's like, oh, this is the end of the world. But in the parent's perspective, like, uh, oh, this will just make you become stronger. And as a parent, you know that because you know for your child there's no fear of failing for them. You know it's not that important compared to the whole grand picture of their life. Like this small little test doesn't determine where they will go in the future. And like the other thing that you know for this child, it's you will provide whatever you can for them also. And you are their safety net. And so you see like the parent's perspective sometimes is very different from what the child is. But I think it's kind of interesting when you start to replace parent with God and the child with us. Now, does that look a little bit familiar here? Does those like, things that we say look a little bit familiar? Like when you start going through trials and tribulations, you start questioning to yourself, Oh God, I'm not worthy of your love. Oh God, I'm just not good enough for you. And I think sometimes it's interesting to look at the parents' perspective, especially today's the Father's Day weekend. <laughs> In the parent's perspective, in God's perspective, especially, you will be like, oh, to the grand picture, this is not a big deal. Like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like, this is a process of sanctification. And so, like, here we have to stop building our identity based on what the world says, what the success of, of the world is. And Solomon, remember, he says all these are vanities of vanities. But instead, we should base our identity on God who loves us very, very deeply. And in verse 19, it's, remember it says, um, we love because he first loved us. So here, like I was saying just now, in 1 John 4, verse 7 through 10, if you can pull that up, 
It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so here what we see is, in order to love God, you have to be loved first. And I think this is a, what a great privilege to be a Christian because as a Christian, there are promises, there are abundant promises for all of us here that God loves you. And like I, sometimes if you think about it, it's like a, we humans, we are not capable of creating anything at all. And a lot of times we need a reference point. We are not like God. We cannot create something out of nothing. So take, take for instance, like a technology I think it's kind of an interesting example to think about when you think about computers. Maybe somebody said, I invented computers. But you see, it's interesting because like a God formed the world and he had all these scientific laws. And in this premise, it allows for computers to exist. So sometimes it makes you think maybe God already has in his mind that this will come someday and he allows for it. So I think it's an interesting proposition here. And and we always need a reference point. Uh, that's a while ago, I think uh, some of us, we played a game where we're supposed to uh, say, I think say something, and say a statement. Then uh, people are supposed to guess who made that statement. And it was an interesting game because I tried really hard to create something that was uh, out of nothing, that was out of my character. But uh, our dear Josiah got it right every single time. I said, how, how can that be possible? Like I, I tried to make the statement that's the most unlike me, but I still couldn't. <laughs> and so you see here, there's, like a, there's a certain reference point that we always do things. And say when you talk about art, when you say about anything, like a colors, we always, first we have, like people always say when uh, they are in the creative field, we need to have the inspiration. And the inspiration, you can say, it's a reference point. And a lot of times this inspiration comes from nature itself. It comes from God itself. And when you trace back all the way to the end, it always comes back to God. And so, like, uh, we'll start going into uh, uh, today the sermon that I have. I call it a three-point sermon to make it easy. <laughs> so, the first thing here is God loves you more than you can imagine. And it's a big word that more than you can imagine, but it is true also. And I would say, like, starting from here, like, uh, Christ is the penultimate proof for all of this. And with this, like, uh, let's take a look at John 3, verse 16 through 17. Very familiar verse to most of us. It says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And you see here, like a, this is an example of Christ's love for us. But let's go a little bit deeper. I, I really love uh, when you talk about covenant theology, when you start looking about Abraham's story. Remember Abraham, like uh, one day he, was, uh, he fell asleep. And uh, when he was sleeping, he, he dreamt about this uh, scene where in this scene, there's a rock and there's like a animals that was cut and was placed on like a dead corpse, like dead animals. And uh, like this scene here, it's a scene that it's, uh, represents a covenant, a making of a covenant, or sometimes you might say a making of a contract. So usually in the olden days, in those uh, times, to make a contract, like, uh, usually what happens is you have these animals that's dead, that's cut into half, and you are saying, and you walk past them, and in that you are saying, like, uh, I will do whatever that I promise. And if I do not do whatever I promise, I'll be like these animals. I'll be dead like them, be cut up like them. But I think the coolest part about this whole incident is that Abraham was standing there, and he was not the person that was walking through all these dead animals. So in the, in the vision, he saw uh, there was a smoking pot and a flaming torch. 
And when you, when you start to learn about Bible more, you realize that this smoking pot and this burning torch is both representation of God himself. And it's, it's interesting because Abraham did not do anything. He was just standing on the side. And it was the burning torch that passes through the animal. And friends, you see the significance here. The significance here is that God is making a promise to Abraham based on himself. And he says, you have all to gain. You have nothing to lose. Like the only person that will ever lose out is me, myself. And God is, that's kind of pretty much what God is saying here. He's saying, if there's anything that's going to break this promise, I'll handle all the problems. I'll handle all the punishment. Like there's, you have, you'll have no problem. Like you'll be peaceful. And, and that, that's kind of crazy to think about it sometimes. Like this is God's love for us. And it's pretty cool. I love that a lot. Uh, and let's take a look at Hebrews 6, verse 13 through 18. It says here, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had, not, he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is, finally, is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise and the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that was set before us. And so here, like, it kind of shows again that God is making a promise on himself. He's, he's willing to bear all the promises. He's willing to bear all the punishment on himself. And like, uh, let's take a look, because like, uh, when we read this verse just now, it talks about Abraham's offsprings. You might think, who is Abraham's offsprings? Then let's take a look at uh, Galatians 3, verse 29. And it says here, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Which means Abraham's offspring are all of us here. And when we talk about belonging to Christ, let's take a look at Romans 10, verse 9. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's what it means to be of Christ. And I'm pretty sure most of us here, that's the case. If you believe in Christ, you proclaim him as Lord, you are Abraham's offspring. And if you are Abraham's offspring, the covenant is for you. The promise is made in stone, cast in gold for your sake here. And like, uh, recently, I also heard some uh, interesting example um, uh, about the love of God. It's uh, when you take a look at John, it says uh, in John, he always uses this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And anybody know, have an idea who that might be? And it's in the book of... John. So John wrote it, and he, he wrote that he is the disciple that God loved. And it's sometimes interesting, um, because I heard somebody say this. He said, like, uh, maybe, like, uh, John, when he was before Christ, when Christ was on the cross, John started to realize, oh, Lord, oh dear, it's like, I'm a sinful person, and Christ has done all this for me. And at a point of time, you start to realize maybe God loves me. So I think it's pretty powerful. That maybe this is what made him wrote in his gospel that he is the disciple whom God loved because he realized through what Christ has done that God loves him very much. So another one I think was interesting. Uh, well, I guess before that, let's take a look at Romans 8, verse 38 through 39. And it says in verse 30, it says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And I think the other good example of uh, God's ongoing love is the Holy Spirit. So let us take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 to 22. And in verse 21, it says, And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So I like uh, how King James Version, instead of guaranteed, it used earnest. And for those who have bought house before, like uh, what you realize is like you have to give what you call earnest money. And this earnest money means like when you give it, you're saying, you're assuring it that you will buy this house. If not, you are ready to forfeit all of it. There's no refunds when it comes to earnest money. Because it's your pledge to say you are going to buy this house. And I thought this, this verse is really cool because God has given the Holy Spirit as the earnest. Do you see the weight of this? Like the Holy Spirit, it's God himself, it's used as an earnest for us. And it, the, what it means here is like a God says, like if you will not come and redeem us, it's impossible because he put part of himself so that he'll come and redeem us. And that means it's a for sure thing. He's saying here, if you he will not come and redeem us, like uh, he's, ready, he's prepared to lose part of himself. Uh, that, that's how the magnitude of this word here, the earnest that we're talking about. So I also like to think about this as an engagement ring. So let's take a look at Revelations 21, verse 2 to 4. And it says here, And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So in this verse, like what I thought was really powerful, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's not the opposite. It's not saying, Behold, the dwelling place of man is with God. And here it comes to say like how much God wants to be with all of us here. Like he wants to be with us more than we think. Most of the time we think, oh, we have to seek God. But here, like what this verse is saying, it's like a God, it's seeking you first. All you have to do is just open the door and let him in. And sometimes I think of this uh, as an engagement ring because, uh, well, like a couple of a couple of years ago, we have lots of marriages, and marriages are cool. And with marriages before that, you always have a, what you know as an engagement period, right? You date the first, then you engage. And this, when we talk about earnest money, this is like the ring, the engagement ring. Because with this engagement ring, it says like, a, I promise I'll do all I can to marry you. It's like an assurance. And it's got the, I think it's interesting because I think in the... Uh, the bright side of perspective is a little bit different because before the engagement ring, you don't really know, like, will he like, uh, marry me? Maybe, maybe not. I hope it will. <laughs> but once the engagement ring is given, now like, you switch, oh, now let's do some wedding planning. Let's look for places to get married in because it's already confirmed. It's like a, almost like a for sure already. And so this is like, uh, what God is doing for all of us too. He's, He's giving His Holy Spirit as an earnest to us, as an engagement ring to us. And isn't that cool? And next, like, uh, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, it is the promise of the Father, the gift of God Himself. So here, as if God has not done enough by giving His Son for all of us, by making this covenant that's based on Himself, that He's going to take all the punishment on Himself, as if, as if this is not enough. Like now God is saying, because I love you guys so much, I'm going to give part of myself to you as extra gift. And it's the promise of the Father, because the Father loved his children a lot. And uh, there's one I also heard this uh, example. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting. It's, uh, this, this dad, uh, his uh, son has a birthday. So he decided to give his son a baseball set. 
And I think there's some, it's something cool with this uh, gift because it's a, a little different from, say, uh, like a video game. Because in a video game, you can play it by yourself. But with a baseball set, you have a baseball, you have a ball, and you have uh, the, the glove. And can you play it by yourself? You need two persons to play this game, isn't it? And so it's interesting because this gift, um, it was cool because this gift necessitates that the father and the child take part in this game together. This gift, it's a gift to the child saying, like, a, I will play with you. It's not just only the gift itself. The gift itself is not too important, but the, the, the whole, the real gift behind, the whole intention behind it is that I will spend time with you. That's something even more precious. And I would say, like, a, this is kind of like the promise of the Father when he gives the Holy Spirit to us. He's saying, like, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as a comforter for you so that you can commune with me. And God is saying here, I don't want to wait anymore. I don't want to wait till you come to heaven so that I can, you can commune with me. I want to commune with you right now. And that is the gift, of, the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I guess if, if you are not convinced that God loves you, uh, you can read the Bible more. <laughs> That's a lot more examples. <laughs> but the other thing I thought was really important is at the core, you must trust that God is good. And sometimes through the trials of life, this is something difficult because uh, in this world, we experience sin. In this world, we are, it's a fallen world. And nobody lives a perfect life. And there's trials and tribulations all the time too. But this is one truth that I would say that cannot be shaken. Like you have to believe that God is good and God is good to you. Because if this truth is shaken and the enemy will try all he can to shake this truth. Think about Job. Like Job has everything and then God said to Satan, how about Job my servant? And a lot of times, like, uh, the enemy will come and shake this truth within your heart. And when he starts shaking truth, and when this truth starts uh, crumbling, like, pieces start falling off, like, this is your foundation for Christianity. If this foundation cracks, it, it won't look good. Because, like, uh, when, when you start thinking that, oh, maybe God is not so good, oh, maybe God it's not for me, like, what will happen to your Christianity? It's you lose faith in God. You'll just be swept off, like what the Bible says, like a swept off by the waves of the life. So this truth cannot be shaken. And it says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he's ready to devour. And the enemy is like a very on its feet. It's always looking, always seeing. That whose foundation he can shake, whose foundation he can destroy, whose foundation he can start chipping off. But we have assurance here because God is a good shepherd. Let's take a look at John 10, verse 10 through 16. It says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was the hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and flees the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. So you see, friends, like, uh, our Christianity is not based on somebody else. It's not based on uh, another preacher. It's not based on some uh, famous evangelist. But our faith, it's rooted in Christ himself. If you base your faith on somebody else, and we know those people, and you know everybody on earth is not perfect, and if they fall, you will fall as well. But if we base our faith on Christ himself, this is an assurance because Christ has already won the victory. And that means like a, he will never fail. 
And that is where we have to place our hope and our trust in. And like I say, like uh, in life, there will always be trials and tribulation, and there will always be hard times too. Let's take a look at Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 12, to see who this real enemy is. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So this makes it clear, our enemy, it's not your neighbor, it's not your boss, or it's not uh, people that might be uh, making you angry or pissing you off. But our enemy here is the devil, and the devil will do all he can to try to shake you up, to try to push you down. But this is where our foundation needs to be strong. And with that, remember I said like a perfect love casts out all fear. And I guess like if you remember the analogy that I gave just now with the child and the parent, and again here, it's like what Christ has done for us. With Christ's death, he has become our safety net. So let's take a look at John 16, verse 33. It says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And you see, like, uh, he is almost like a God is telling us, like, there's nothing to fear because I am your safety net. If you place your trust in me, like, there's no place you can fall further. As long as you continue on to receive the grace I have for you, it's impossible for the enemy to strike you down. And that's the wonder of being a Christian itself. And also, our Holy Spirit is our comforter in need. And this is also another reason why God has given us the Holy Spirit, that in times of trials and tribulations, because God knows it, sometimes it is challenging if you lost somebody dear to you or if um, something really bad happened in your life. Like sometimes God knows like, uh, the challenges of being human. Because uh, let's take a look at um, Romans 8, verse 26 to 28. It says, Likewise, the Spirit help us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And here, it's, 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 uh, this is an assurance that God has given us. Because, like I said, God knows that being human is challenging sometimes. And so he has sent the Holy Spirit to comfort us in these times of need. And when you're in your most down period, when people are saying negative things or the world seems to be going crazy, there you, God has given you the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to tell you words that he loves you, like everything is going to be okay. And I think it's interesting because sometimes, like, uh, I guess uh, recently somebody mentioned uh, sometimes, like, uh, when you have a kid and the, the baby starts going, crying like crazy, and sometimes you just need somebody to say, it's okay. And sometimes that's the role of the Holy Spirit here. It's here to tell, oh, like, there's troubles in life, but it's okay. I've got your back. And uh, when you talk about sanctification, <laughs> Let's take a look at James 1, verse 2 to 4. It says here, Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness, steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God says, uh, when you have trials and tribulations, count it all joy. I know sometimes it's difficult, especially with uh, those weird things that happen to you, the crazy manager, the crazy friend, the crazy roommate. But he says, count it all joy because this is for your own good. In some ways, God is almost saying like, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, makes you more sanctified in him. <laughs> well, of course, like, when you're a kid, you know, oh, this is, this is tough. <laughs> 
when your parents say, oh, it's fine, it's like, I got your back, there's nothing to worry about. Oh, I still worry a lot. <laughs> but that is us, that's a sin nature. And that's our, our, sometimes our lack of faith in God too. And this, this takes time to build too, like your faith in God. And this foundation has to be built over time as, as, when, as when God shows you like the wonders of his majesty. He shows you that all things are possible through Christ who strengthens me. And when you see that happening in your own life, like your, this foundation is starting to build. It's built a bit stronger each time. Like you're putting more layers on it so that it wouldn't get destroyed. And I think this is the whole sanctification process in Christ. And sometimes I like to think of sanctification as purifying gold. Like the Bible talks a lot about gold. And when you're purifying gold or silver, like a, what you're, when you heat it up to high temperatures, that's like the testing. Like sometimes God put you in the crucible and heat you up to like a very, very high temperature, like we are close to your breaking point. But it's also at those kind of times that the dross, all the unwanted impurities come out. Like it's only in testing that your faith can be made true, be made visible to other people too. Like without any kind of hardship, without any kind of testing, like a, you cannot be purified as gold. And like a, when you think about winemaking, I'm sure a lot of people love wine here. But when we think about winemaking, it's the same process too. Like when you have the grapes, uh, a lot of times uh, the Bible talks about the vineyards, the grapes, as the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit has produced after some time. But like, uh, what, what happens to this fruit later? Sometimes like, uh, you know, these grapes, have, to make wine, you have to put it in the wine press. And when the wine press, what happens? You have a pressure that comes down over you, pressing you over and over. And in olden times, it's a lick stepping on it. <laughs> Maybe somebody is stepping over you all the time, like a, over and over and over again, until you cannot take it. But it's in, in this testing, like uh, the goodness, the wine begins to produce. And when the wine starts to produce, the other process that I thought was interesting is you have to let the kind of this like a wine yeast starts to ferment so that it begins to produce alcohol from sugar. And it takes time to this process. And so it's almost like somebody stepping on you over and over and over again. Then now you're like, ah. Oh. Finally you say, oh God, like I give up. God come and take over. <laughs> I'm at the end of all I can do. I fight hard enough, but this wine press is so strong. I, can, I cannot take it. I cannot... Uh, handle this kind of pressure, but I leave it all up to you. And then this is where the Word of God becomes to come as a small little yeast into your life. And this yeast begins to produce wine. I thought it's an interesting process when you start looking at this. And sometimes it takes years and years to mature this wine. And in the end, like what you have here, it's a good product that's highly valued. If it's grapes alone, like you can buy grapes anytime. It's not that expensive. Like even like when you're, people are growing grapes, it falls on the ground all the time. But a wine that's bottled, a wine of great value, it's a different story. And so the third point here that I have is you must learn to enjoy God. And sometimes there's also something difficult to do too. Because when we talk about this, one of the questions that comes up is, do you love God or do you love the things that God can do for you? And this is an important question. And sometimes, like in our hearts, this is being blurred. Like sometimes, do you love, really love God or do you actually love His blessings only? Do you love His gifts, but you don't love the giver itself? And it is, it's a challenging thing. Because sometimes you might be tested in ways, in your job, for example. Maybe God is not giving you the job that you want. Or even in relationship, maybe God is not giving you the person that you want for marriage. But are you, in this kind of times, are you willing to tell God, like, oh God, I leave it all up to you. I trust in your sovereignty. I trust in your plan. I trust that you are good, that whatever you will provide with me, I will be satisfied. And when you have this kind of thought, you, you, when you have this kind of thought, naturally things like, uh, 
oh God, will you, will you provide me a wife that is, uh, that's attractive, <laughs> kind of falls away. Because when you have this kind of thought in you, when you know that God is good, you know God will provide whatever it's in your heart that's even greater than what you have imagined or think of. You know that he won't give you uh, breadcrumbs that fell on the floor for food. You know he won't give you insects to eat. Or recently, uh, we went to Singapore and uh, I had amber. We tried pig's brain. <laughs> Just, ah, uh, <laughs> it looks so gross. I mean, it's, it's, it's not bad, but maybe for your cases here, God will not provide you with the unwanted parts for food. He will provide you only what you love the most. Of course, sometimes the challenge is that with sin, what we love the most is not necessarily the best for us. Sometimes I might want my Cheetos. Sometimes I want my Doritos, whatever toast. But sometimes God just wants to give you the good food that will make you healthy and make you strong. And here, so loving God requires obedience and obedience, humility. So let's take a look at John 14, verse 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so here, it's very simple sometimes, like a... The Christian life, I would say it's a very simple thing, but sometimes it's also a very complicated thing. And when we think about our relationship, say our relationship with our spouse too, sometimes it can be very simple, but sometimes it can be very complicated too. It can be simple in the sense it's just two persons coming together, trying to love each other, but it can be complicated in the sense that, oh, sometimes there's a communication problem, there's like this problem, that problem, or sometimes like a... The kid is doing some other problems. There's so many things that are going back and forth. But here, you see, the thing is, um, loving God, it starts from obedience. It's because God has everything to provide. And it starts with our obedience to Him. And with this obedience, it requires us to have humility. Uh, I like uh, what Andrew Murray said. He said, humility is a place of entire dependence on God. It is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. So you might ask here, what does loving God have to do with enjoying Him? I would say here, enjoying God is the practice of knowing God loves you and knowing that He is good. To simply put it, it's a practice, enjoying God is the practice of loving God himself. And it takes practice, so I'll encourage everyone to start, some, start somewhere small. I've done this uh, myself, I try to. Uh, sin comes and steals away stuff sometimes, takes away your time, distracts you. But this is sometimes what you can try. It's to start with maybe five to ten minutes of prayer, of three to five times a day. Just commune with God, worship Him, pray to Him. If, and throughout the week, throughout your work day, you can feel your thoughts with God. When you have a problem, you start to think, oh, God, like, a, what would you do in this case? Or when you have the decision to make, like, a, you first ask, oh, God, like, a, what would you do? So the main thing is uh, in your daily life, in every decision, start to choose God. And sometimes it's challenging because especially when trials of life come, Sometimes you might be tired, you might just be annoyed by everything that's going around you. And I would say here, like a friend, we have a choice here. You, you can't either choose God or choose your own way. If you choose your own way, you continue on to be in anger. Usually it becomes a vicious cycle. Because in anger, for example, what happens is uh, you get angry and you kind of uh, create more thoughts to, create you, to make you even angrier. And it's a very strange thing. Like a sin is a very addictive thing. Because like, uh, when you think about it, when you're angry, like, uh, what, makes you, what makes you want to be even more angrier? It's, you kind of have these thoughts. And these thoughts, you, you kind of, it's almost like uh, you want these thoughts to come. You want these thoughts of anger to come. And you start keep thinking about them nonstop, nonstop. 
it kind of grows more and more and more and more. Actually, it might start small, but it keeps going and going, and it kind of grows and grows and grows. Or even with, like I say, a thought of fear. Like you might start with something small. You might say, oh, I'm just afraid. Then you're just like, what if this? What if that? What if that might happen? What if earth will end? What if I might die tomorrow? Like these thoughts are never ending. It just keep on going and going and going. And the strange thing is, like I, when you start this chain, it's almost unstoppable. You want to keep thinking about it more and more. It's like, oh, let, let me think of something new that I can think about it negatively. Uh, why my friend hates me? Like, oh, that's okay. That's that. Oh, let me create another thing more. What if my dog hates me? <laughs> so it kind of keeps going and going. You see this, this pattern, it kind of keeps regenerating itself. But the thing here is we have a choice. You have a choice to stop at that point and choose what God would want you to do, to be humid, to be humble before Him, to say, oh God, I give it all to you. Like, uh, God, you have all this in your hands. If there's like a, if my manager is going off me all the time, oh God, it's not me to judge him. But, oh God, it's like, a, I know you are sovereign and you will be good to me. And so I guess uh, to end off here, uh, some of you have heard this story. It's a pretty popular story, uh, Team Hoyt. So uh, I, I went, like, uh, a couple of years ago when I first heard this story, uh, I was uh, pretty touched by it. So like, uh, in this story, it's about this father and this son. So in 1962, Dick and Judy Hoyt gave birth to their son, Rick Hoyt. During their childbirth, Rick's umbilical cord has wrapped around his neck, cutting off the supply of oxygen to his brain, so he was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. And the doctors advised Dick and Judy to institutionalize Rick because he was never going to be anything other than a vegetable. But Dick and Judy refused and brought Rick home to raise him like any other child. So in the spring of 1977, uh, Rick, which is the, the kid there, he told his dad that he wanted to compete in a five-mile running road race to help raise money for a high school lacrosse player who has just been paralyzed in an accident. And this is where it gets interesting because this dad, Dick, he's a non-runner at the time. Like he was a like, ooh. Five mile. It's kind of like me. Imagine like, a, ooh, I gotta run five mile. Ooh, I don't know if I can do it or not. You gotta take a lot. And especially, it's not just me running. I have to push somebody too. But the the dad, um, he he joined he joined this competition, and he he decided to push Rick for the full five miles. And while they uh, they did not came in first. But they came in second. So it's pretty good already. But later that night, uh, Rick was typing and was talking to his dad to, by typing. And I think this is where it's most impactful. It says, Rick said to his dad, Dad, when I'm running, he feels like I'm not handicapped. And that's where all it started. So since that fateful day uh, in 1977, Dick and Rick became known as Team Horde. And they finished like a 255 triathlons, 22 duathlons, 72 marathons, and 95 half marathons, and 35 fall miles, 7.1 milers, and a handful of other races. So they came in at almost like a, more than a thousand races. And that's pretty impressive here. But I just took that one word from Rick. He says, that when I'm running, I feel that I'm not handicapped. And to me, like, uh, why this story impacts me is because uh, when I start thinking about this story, I thought the love of this father is very inspirational. And sometimes it represents the love of God to a certain degree. Because when I first heard this story, I thought to myself that maybe we are just like Greek. Maybe we are just like the, this boy over here. And God was like the dad. And before time began, before we are all even in existence, <laughs> Uh, God has heard our cry and the, the sentence we made to him was uh, Father when I'm with you it feels like all the problem in the world vanishes 
And upon that, God says, I will do everything it takes to be with you. And that's kind of what I was imagining when I was hearing this story. So you see, in Dick's case, uh, the sacrifice cost him much tears, blood, and sweat. And it transformed him from a non-runner to a competitor runner. And, of course, that takes a lot. I cannot even imagine for myself. But you see, in God's case, uh, it costs us nothing. It costs you nothing at all to come into the grace of God. But what it costs God here, like here it costs God everything. It's even beyond what we can imagine. So in Hebrews 12, verse 2 to 6, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not go weary or faint-hearted. And in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Even more than this, God has showered great gifts upon us of immeasurable value because God says the gift is him. The gift is him himself. And that's the greatest gift all of us can receive here. There's no other gift that's more amazing than this. So, no matter what kind of circumstances you are facing today, like draw near to the throne of grace so that you may taste and see that the Lord is good and that you may enjoy Him. So today, God is inviting you with extended hands to commune with Him. And He desires it very much for all of us to commune with Him. And He's knocking at the door of your heart and He's waiting for you to just get up, to open the door. So I guess I got today, if you heard this message, and if it doesn't impact you in any ways, or it doesn't show you how God loves you, it doesn't show you how you can begin to love God, I would say like a, our time might have been wasted here. If there's anything to take home today, I would say it's to love God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our soul, and with all our might. And with that, I'll close today.